0: A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to uh, spend a lot of time with my uncle. He, uh, my uncle came in from Memphis. I don't get to see him often. oftentimes. Um, he's my, my only uncle. I only have one. Uh, he's my mom's brother. And so uh, he came in. Believe it or not... I don't have any aunts. I only have one uncle and I have no cousins. Some of you can't even imagine what that's like to be raised with no cousins, but that was me. And so uh, no cousins. So I don't have a ton of family to really get family history from. So when my uncle was in, I had a chance to just quiz him about what it was like to grow up. They grew up in a small, my mom and her brother, uh, my uncle grew up in a small town in Northeast Iowa, situated right between Postville and West Union, Claremont, Iowa, most of you have no idea where that is, but I do. So um, I, I was trying to quiz him and, and, and see a little bit what it was like. And he started talking about his grandma, his, gra- his grandmother, Grandma Haas. And, and she was dead long before I ever lived. And, and so I was asking what it was like, what she was like. And, and I was, it was just fun to hear him talk about what she was like. She, would come, uh, she lived across the street from them. And so on Saturday mornings, she would come across the street into their kitchen because uh, it was bigger than hers. And she would do all the baking for the entire week for both households. And uh, my uncle said, as a kid, I hated it because early on Saturday morning when I wanted to sleep in, she'd fill the house with the smell of baked goods. And I had to wake up because it smelled so good. And, uh, and so he just, I, I just was eating this stuff up as he was talking about it. He talked about uh, just her kind of her caring heart, how she loved to care for her grandkids. In fact, uh, when my mom was a little girl, she would get so car sick that uh, they couldn't even drive to the next town without her getting sick. So one time they, they went on a trip to vacation to California and they drove to California and they just left her at home because she got so sick. And her grandma cared for her. I just ate all this up as my uncle was telling me this story because this is my history too. Even though I didn't know my great grandma Haas, his grandma, uh, I still felt connected to her. Being connected to our past and in our history is important. And I and I felt like I was introduced to my grandma's as we talked through with my uncle. In Exodus, in many ways, is a book of introductions for us. And today I'm going to begin to reintroduce you to God as He introduces Himself to His people, the Israelites and we are going to be in Exodus for a long time. Get comfortable, get used to this book. Just kind of settle in because we're going to be here all fall. We're going to do the first half of the book up to Christmas. We're going to take a break for a Christmas series and we're going to jump into the second half of the book in January. And we are going to get to know God. The first half of the book of Exodus is all about getting to know God. The second half of the book is about drawing close to God. Um the Israelites in Exodus are introduced to this concept of a very personal God who loves them and he delivers them from Egypt. There are a lot of really important events that happen in the book of Exodus. Some of these you'll be familiar with. We're introduced to Moses who is, who is set out to, into the Nile in a raft and rescued and raised as a, a prince in Egypt. And we're going to get to know Moses a little bit. And of course, you know the story of the burning bush and the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and and the events at Mount Sinai and God giving his law to them, the building of the tabernacle. All these things happen in the book of Exodus and they meet God. Alex Mateer really separates this book into three parts. He says, we're going to be introduced to God the Savior, God the companion, and God the indweller. Uh, And I like that. It's all about getting to know God, to be introduced to him. And to understand God, the Israelites are going to need to understand God's connection to them in the past. So as we dive into Exodus chapter 1 today, the first thing I want to introduce you to in the text is a word that doesn't even appear in most of your English versions of the Bible because it's probably not really grammatically correct. That's the word and. A simple conjunction, and. It might be the most important word in Exodus chapter 1 because it connects us. It connects the book. It seems like it should be unimportant, but it's really the Hebrew word. In Hebrew, it's just one little mark. It's the Hebrew letter vav. It's vav. It's uh, and. It's a connector. And the idea from the get-go is that the book of Exodus is connected to the book that precedes it, to Genesis. Connecting words are important words, and it's a very important word. For instance, if I were to tell you I had to pay the federal government $300,000 in taxes, you would go, oh man, bummer. But if I said, I won the lottery, and had to pay the government $300,000 in taxes, you might look at that face very differently. You cannot look at the book of Exodus without understanding the context of Genesis. And guess what? About a year ago, we finished up the book of Genesis. So I'm gonna have to pull out of your minds some of these important things that we talked about in the book of Genesis. And to understand the book of Exodus, we have to connect it to its place in the whole Pentateuch. Moses, in writing Exodus, wants the Israelites to know that you are connected. This is your story. These are your people. This is your God. The word and is about connection. So what I want you to know today is this. I tell you one thing every single week that I want you to remember. The thing that you should write down, the thing that Exodus 1 is about, is simply this phrase. You are connected into God's story you are not alone. You are connected. Every single one of you here today is connected into God's story through Jesus. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are connected into a family. You are not alone. And this is the beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus even though the book of Exodus was written 1,400 years before Jesus would come on the scene, yet Jesus breathes truth to us through this passage because you and I, who most of us aren't Jews in this room, are still connected into God's story because as in Romans 9, Paul says, we're grafted in. We are the people of God, so we are connected to God's story from years past. We are connected. This is our story. We are not alone. So let's get to know God along with our, the ancient Israelites and let's be connected. So today I want to ask you this simple question. Do you feel disconnected in life? Do you feel disconnected from others or from God? Today I, I just want to introduce you to this God and all over again. And I want you to see that the and of Exodus, the very first word means you're not alone. To introduce you to God all over again. So there's really two sections of, the, of chapter one of Exodus. Verses one to 11 and then 12 to 22. And what I want you to see today is as we dive in here, I want to teach you seven concepts. Seven. Seven concepts. Seven concepts about God that he introduces to us. Because God is not overtly present in exodus chapter one and yet behind the scenes he's he's shouting at us later on we're going to get the formal introduction to god where we meet god meets moses at the burning bush but for now god wants us to know these seven things split into two sections and so in the first section the thing you need to know about and and means you are not alone And the first 11 verses has this idea of you are connected to God's people. You are connected to God's people. There are three things that I want to talk about God in this first section. Ways that you're connected. And then four more in the last. And the first concept of this in this first 11 verses that you need to know about God is that you are connected with God's people because God has a people. All right, let's get to the text. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. We just got a listing of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of of Judah and they're all down in Egypt together. And God is a God who has set out to make for himself a people, a family of his own. Now, let me give you a very quick, very very quick tour of what happened in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11. Moses says here's everything you need to know to start our story. God created everything, people screwed it all up. There was a big flood. And nations were scattered all over the world. Okay, that's everything you need to know before God introduces our first main character on the scene, Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. And Joseph ticks off his brothers, and they sell him down into slavery in Egypt. And you may remember the entire story of Joseph, how... Uh, He rises to power in Egypt and eventually saves his entire family. And at the end of Genesis, we see Joseph and his 11 brothers in Egypt together. And there it is, just 70 people. That's it. The entire nation of God at the end of Genesis is 70 people. Now, notice the promise that God made to Abraham in what might be the most important verse in, in the book of Genesis or close to it. Genesis chapter 12. Let me just read it to you. God calls Abraham and he says, leave your country and your father, go to the land I'll show you. And this is the promise God makes him. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse you, curse those who curse you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God made an agreement with Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be my people. You're going to have a a, a people. You're going to have a land. And you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. And this is the promise that God makes to Abraham in in chapter 12. By the end of Genesis, his promise is still not fulfilled. I mean, a great nation. They got all, all of 70 people in this nation. But God has developed, is developing a people. And I, I think this tells us a little bit about how God works. God loves to develop and bring a family. And I love that imagery. I, you guys know that I have a lot of kids. I have six kids and, uh, and, and I en- enjoy every single one of them for their own reasons. <laughs> I look forward to the day, I've all told them, all six kids have to have six kids, so I get 36 grandkids out of the deal. It's a non-negotiable, and uh, I want a huge family. I think that's awesome. That's what a blessing. God's building a family. You need to understand this about God, and you and I belong to this family through Jesus Christ. In a world of loneliness, you need to know that you belong. I was just laughing as Kaelin went to, I dropped off Kaylin, my daughter, to college this week, took her out to Colorado. She's going to Colorado Christian and got her in her dorm room. And I was thinking about her uh, and just this, we left her on her own. And, and, you know, in, in her entire life up to this point, this girl has been surrounded by a family of chaos, activity constantly. I mean, she could retreat to her room, but anytime she wanted to be around people, she just had to walk upstairs and interact in a place she knew she was loved and accepted. Uh, and now she's on her own. <laughs> it's got to be an unnerving experience. Uh, for some of you, you know what it's like to be all alone because your family situation isn't chaos. And some of you just wish you could find a moment alone. Uh, it, we're all different, and yet we're all part of a family through Jesus. God has a people. The second thing you need to know about God is that God has a purpose for his people verse 6 and 7. So we have the Israelites, they're all down, all 70 of them are down. Look what happens. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Okay, In, in these two verses... The simple matter is that they, they went from a very small group of 70 people and over the course of the next 400 years, they went from about 70 to maybe 2 million. Uh, I, the, the estimates from 1 to 2 million, the nation of Israel was like. And th- this is their situation. And God is over 200 years fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And you, the language in verse 6 and 7 is so... Uh, Great. It it makes you scream back to Genesis chapter one and two. It's the language that Moses is using here because God gave the Israelites a creation mandate. He said, when he created, excuse me, when he created people, he gave people a creation mandate. When he created Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. That's what his creation mandate to Adam and Eve was. Well, the language here is even better it's the same thing. He says, the Israelites, look what they did. They completed the creation mandate. They're working on it. They didn't complete it, but they're working on it. In fact, fruitful and multiply, that's the same language. In fact, this one actually one-ups a, The word multiply is the word from Genesis that says the oceans were teeming or swarming with, with fish and with, with the life. And the idea here is that that's how crazy this multiplication of the Israelites was. I mean, this is insane stuff. Uh, if, if you can imagine uh, uh, mice or rabbits or hamsters, or we're in this kind of crazy multiplication phase, or if you like Star Trek, tribbles, okay? This is the kind of multiplication they're in. It is insane. God has a purpose, he, it's fun to, for Moses is pointing out to him, hey, by the way, that creation mandate that back in, in the early chapters of Genesis, the Israelites are fulfilling that over the next 400 years, from 70 to 2 million. So God has a people. God has a purpose for his people. Next thing we know is God works in the predicaments of his people. They find themselves in kind of a bad spot. Look at verse 8. The new king, then a new king who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, these Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so they begin to find themselves in a predicament. Look at verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. All of a sudden, this group that was fulfilling the creation mandate, filling the earth, becoming so numerous, found themselves in danger. They found themselves in a predicament. This new Pharaoh, he was not the Pharaoh that loved Joseph, he was not the guy that understood Joseph. In, in Egyptian history, we learned, we learned from history that there were several dynasty changes of power in Egypt. And it's kind of difficult to identify exactly which Egyptian pharaoh or which period this was in. But the point is not that. The point is that God's people are in trouble. And this new pharaoh doesn't know what the old one saw in Joseph and his descendants. And Joseph has this fear He fears an enemy within his own borders. And so Pharaoh's solution is to try to create an imbalanced race. He tries to suppress them, he tries to create them, uh, uh, put his foot on them, and say, I'm going to keep you under control lest you rise up and become an enemy. Bad things are happening. Bad things are happening. where's God now? I mean, we, when they're multiplying, we sort of see God, right? Oh, yeah, look, God's in the details. He promised Abraham he'd create a great nation, and now over 400 years, he's doing this, and he's working, and they're, they're multiplying, and he's blessing them, and they're growing into this great nation, and I, I see God, but now they're enslaved. Where's God? I mean, this is God's people, Later on, in a few verses, we're going to find out that Pharaoh starts slaughtering and trying to create genocide to these people. He just wants to keep them under control. Where's God? I mean, it's the same question that was asked in Genesis. When God promised Abraham he'd make a great nation out of him, Abraham was like, we can't have kids. How's this going to work? When Jacob was running from his brother Esau, where's God? When Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, Where's God? Well, the answer is God is working a plan for his people, even in the predicament. Genesis fifty twenty, the very last sermon that I preached on the book of Genesis in the life of Joseph, we, I quoted this verse to you, and I told you to repeat it to yourself over and over. Joseph, at the end of his life, when his brothers are groveling before him and saying, now that our dad's dead, don't squash us like bugs, and Joseph weeps with them, and he says, I, I, I've forgiven you. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Even in the predicament, God is working. And you can see this. Moses is making us look back to the book of Genesis and remember this. You see, the truth is God is working on our predicament because God plays the long game. When we think about playing a long game, we think about... Uh, working out a plan over years. If you've ever read uh, or seen the movie or read the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, you see this guy work out his plot for revenge over the course of his whole life, and it's integrated, and we think, wow, that's amazing. That guy played the long game. God's playing the long game over generations, over hundreds of years. It has been, today, it has been 4,000 years since God made his promise to Abraham. And yet, God's still working out his plan. You and I think, gosh, God's taken a long time for him to work out his plan in my life. I mean, it's been like three years now and it hasn't worked out. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> Try 3,000 years. God is working his plan. Amen. He's working it. And he's working and he's playing the long game. We can't see past next week. We think, well, God is working in my life, but I don't see him anymore. Your story is connected to millions of others, and God is working through them as well. And God plays the long game. So God works in the predicaments. He works. He has a purpose. He has a people. He has a purpose. And he works in the predicaments over a long period of time. And when you think, I can't see God anymore, just know he's playing the long game. And the bigger piece about it is it's really sometimes not even about you and me. God is using generations to accomplish his plan. You are connected to God's story. You're not alone and your life is more about more than just you. So those are the first 3 things about God that we begin to learn. Even though God has not overtly screamed at us from Exodus 1, we learn that God has a people, that God has a purpose for his people, and that God works in predicaments. That's a lot of Ps. I would move on to the second major half of the book now, of, or of chapter 1 rather. You are not only connected to God's people, you are also connected to God's presence. And in the second half of our text today, we're going to see four more things about God. The, the fourth thing that we learn about God, we see right away, in, uh, in verse 12 and 14. Read this with me. So Pharaoh puts them, oppresses them, puts them in slavery. But the more they were oppressed, they more, the more they multiplied and spread. So the, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. In these verses, you need to understand that God is always working. I mean, God works in, uh, in predicaments, but God doesn't stop working. He's always working, even if it's in the background. There's an amazing thing here. You may not see it right away, but in verse 12, the word, more than, the word multiplied in verse 12 is clearly connected back to the same Hebrew word in verse 10 about them becoming numerous. So in other words, verse 10, Pharaoh is worried that they're going to multiply. Verse 12, they multiply. Verse 10, I'm concerned they're gonna multiply, so I'm gonna try to squash them. Verse 10, the more, verse 12, the more he tried to squash them, the more they multiplied. It's all connected. Uh, this spring, uh, as the weather got warmer from, from last winter, uh, I discovered we had an ant problem in our house there were ants everywhere. Uh, In my bathroom, in my kitchen, ants were, and I'm too cheap to hire an exterminator, okay? I'm going to handle this on my own. And so the more I bought stuff to handle them, I tried manually squishing all the ants. Uh, It's really hard. And the more I tried to deal with it, the more ants we had. I couldn't get rid of the ants. And what's the problem? Well, First of all, I figured out that my children just left food all over the house, so it's really hard, you know? Like, they're walking through the garage, and they drop a hot dog on the ground, and they go, well, you know, I could pick that up, but why, why would I do that? The ants will clean it up for me, right? You know? <laughs> the more I tried to squish the ants, the more they multiplied, and this is Pharaoh's predicament, right? The more he tries to squish the Israelites, the more, the more they multiply, You see, there's a point where the Israelites should have been eliminated, but they're not because God is working, even in their hardship. Um, Tertullian said, it's a famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, And it's this idea that the more that you try to squish the church, the more the church multiplies. Um, Well, that's not always true in every given area. Um, There have been successful extermination of Christians in certain areas over the years. But the principle is at work here, and this is a very dark moment. I mean, imagine if our government rounded up all the Christians and put us in slave internment camps. We would feel like something horrible had happened. And yet God blesses them anyway, because God is near. He's always working. And it's a complete cliche when we say God is always working, and yet it's true. God's working is not always hidden from us. I mean, I think that's part of the challenge is sometimes we think, okay, if God is working over the course of centuries or millennia, his working might be hidden from me. And we tell each other, you know, you can't see it, but God's working. Sometimes you can see it. You just gotta open your eyes. In our hardest, most difficult, most painful moments, we tend to be blind to what God's doing. We tend to go, I don't wanna see because I'm mad at him. We don't want to see it. But so many times, like here, it's very visible what God is doing. Years ago, I had a chance to go see Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat in Chicago, back when Donny Osmond was Joseph. And, uh, and we went to the Chicago Theater and saw him. And as I was watching this uh, musical unfold and just really enjoying myself, at one point, the, when Joseph uh, in, in the musical goes down to Egypt, Uh, they have these things on the stage, they're giant conveyor belts or something, and they're moving the scenery across the stage as he is journeying down to Egypt. These props are flying across the stage all over. It was so cool. And at one point, I was tempted to think, you know, there's got to be like an army of people and behind-the-scenes people making all this technology happen. But at the moment, I was like, I don't care. I don't want to think about it because this is too cool. I just want to enjoy it. I don't want to think about what's going on behind the scenes. And you and I are like that sometimes with God. We just don't want to see what he's doing, even though he's there. Because he's always working. Moses gives us a little glimpse of the working of God here as he's writing in the background. The the obvious works of God have not come to the surface yet. The Red Sea... You know, the plagues, the obvious hands of God have not risen up yet because Moses is telling us hey, even before I was born, God is working. Amen. You and I are connected into God's presence, and He's working. The fifth thing you need to know about God is that He's always working in the unlikely. <laughs> he's working in the unlikely. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah. Why, isn't that fascinating that we get their names? Right? We get their names. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. And if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They're not wussies, right? They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives even arrive. <laughs> Just, it, it's hilarious. I like take a stab at the Egyptians, right? Um, Pharaoh's plan, because they're still multiplying, his plan is genocide. Uh, God hasn't raised up Moses. There's no obvious leader, and so we get the names of these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, and they are unlikely heroes. I I love that Moses gives us their names because they're recorded forever in history. These two women that would be nobody to anybody—they're just midwives. They're the unlikely heroes of chapter one. The ones that no one would expect to be the heroes. They are the heroes. You see, God's presence, when God is with us, he raises up the most unlikely of people. Doesn't he? The most unlikely of people. This is how God works. And I love that when God's presence is working, he gives conviction and courage because these two women disobeyed the orders of the king of the land at great peril to themselves. But they saved the people of God. You see, God's presence gives us conviction and courage and God uses the unlikely to thwart evil. Even plain old you can be used by God. Even the most unlikely of you in this room The most unlikely of us who probably may be seen like our, our life isn't really that important in the grand scheme of things, even you can be used by God because he always is working in the unlikely. You're connected to God's story. You are not alone. His presence is near. The sixth thing I want you to know about God is that God is always working for good. He's always working. He's always working in the unlikely and he's always working for good. The chapter continues. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of his own, of their own. He blesses them. And here's the Genesis language again of multiplying, of being numerous. You see, even in the darkness, he's working for our good. He is near. The seventh thing I want you to know as I introduce you to God from chapter one today is that God is always working his plan. Chapter one ends kind of on a bummer note. Look at 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Uh, the NIV maybe does us a little bit of injustice here. Uh, the, the, some other versions highlight this a little bit better. Uh, let every son, kill every son that is born, let the daughters live. Uh, the, it's more personal. I mean, every boy is somebody's son. Every daughter is somebody's, somebody, every girl is somebody's daughter. Like, just think about it for a minute, the personal impact of something as horrible as genocide. Uh, this is meant to hurt. This is meant for you to envision your own sons and daughters. This is meant for you to, to envision the close familiar love and relationship here. This is painful. This is dark. And, but the darkness doesn't quit. We foreshadow here Moses, and, and of course in verse 22... When we see this, there's the foreshadowing about throwing into the Nile because in the next chapter we're going to introduce to this boy Moses who is thrust into the Nile in a little boat. And there, There's a foreshadowing going on because even in the darkest command, the darkest days, God is still working his plan. The person through whom God would make his formal introduction to his people is one that happens because they have to throw their babies into the Nile. And this mother who loves her son is going to cast him in a boat into the Nile. But everything will be okay because God is near. And if you flip back to Genesis 46, verses 1 to 4. So Israel set out. With all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifice to God. And God spoke to Israel in a vision, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And God said, here I am. I am the God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will, be close, will close your eyes see, God is working his plan. He, he declared the plan to, to Abraham way back in the beginnings of Genesis, and he's working his plan even in the darkest moments. So you and I are connected into the story of God, and we're not alone. So my, I, I want to close with this simple concept. Je, Exodus chapter 1 should give you some first impressions about God should give you some first impressions about God. This is your God. And I wonder sometimes if you and I haven't gotten the wrong impression about God. I mean, we're all raised in whatever environment you were raised in, you were raised with some impressions about who God was, whether God was a distant person waiting to squash you and punish you, or, or maybe you just, God was a person who was removed and didn't really care about you, or your impression of God was someone who just wanted you to Ask Jesus into your heart and complete the formula so you could go to heaven. And we get these wrong impressions about who God is. First impressions are not necessarily the right impressions. And Moses is correcting those for us in chapter 1 of Exodus. I wonder if you haven't gotten the wrong impression about God. Um, When I was in my first ministry, uh, um, our pastor left in the middle of my time there. And we hired a new pastor Uh, and I had a first impression of this guy. The first impression came with with the photo that the search team handed me and said, I think this is the guy we're going to hire, and the photo was uh, a guy in a full suit and tie, you know, and I just thought, that's kind of stuffy. You know, you can tell that I love to dress up in a suit and tie, and I just thought, oh, that's kind of stuffy, and i knew his church background i'm like my new boss is going to be a stuffy guy and he's going to be a guy that probably thinks he knows it all and this could be really bad and i'll never forget after he was hired in his first week in the office the first thing he does when he comes in the office is he comes in shorts and a t-shirt into the office and he's got these big old guns of arms that i saw and i thought man this guy could squash me in a second and he takes this this this, uh, this guy he is in, in his shorts and a t-shirt, and he sits down. I had a couch in my office back then. Uh, and he uh, sits on my couch, and he just starts to ask my advice. Tell me about this church. Tell me about these people. What do I do with this person, and how do I handle this person? And what, tell me about the theology of what this church believes in this matter and that matter. And he just started picking my brain, and he did that for months. wow, I think my first impression was wrong. And I got to know a guy who today is a fast friend, a mentor, um, and a man who loves Jesus dearly. And the point of the whole story is that first impressions can often be wrong. All of this first impression of God will point to a later introduction because we're going to be introduced to God and and we're going to be introduced to Moses and Exodus, but this also points us to a, a later introduction. 1400 years later, after Exodus, we are introduced to a baby in a barn in Bethlehem who would be God incarnate. In fact, Jesus says, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. The the beautiful manifestation of God who would come to know us. And all of this is screaming of Jesus, get to know God. Get to know Jesus. So as we dive in together in the next few months, I want to encourage you to get to know God all over again. Let your first impressions go and embrace this wonderful, beautiful, holy God who has a loving plan for his people. And you and I are connected into God's story because we are not alone. We ended our series in Genesis by singing a song and we're gonna sing it again because it ties us back into this idea. The song has to do with the loving sovereign hand of God. You are sovereign over us. Let's pray as our worship team comes back up. Heavenly Father, it is our desire to know you more, to be reintroduced to you, to know who you are so that we understand who Jesus is Jesus, that your name be glorified in in us. And so allow us the grace of stripping away our preconceived notions of God, of who you are and how you work, and to embrace the God that is introduced to us in the book of Exodus, a God who loves his people. And let us see ourselves as people who are connected to this story. In Jesus' name, amen.